It is official. The 2021-22 season is upon us. This is my very first overtime hockey podcast to open up the season. Bringing in one of my good friends in hockey and a guy that I love to see at the rink each and every time. We can now call him a high school hockey coaches association hall of famer. Tom Klein joins us. He, of course, is a coach here at the Benilde St. Margaret's Red Knights as we sit in this spacious NHL-esque like locker room right now. And uh, we have lots to talk about. TK, as he's uh, affectionately known of, uh, around the entire circles of the classroom and, of course, at the hockey ranks, is here to join us. So, first of all, congratulations on a well-deserved honor. Oh, Wags, thanks a lot. Um, I, I'm actually really humbled by it. Um, I, I actually, my brother called me uh, about a four or five weeks ago and he asked me this question. He goes, do you think you're ever going to get in? And I said, you know what? I don't, I think I should, but I don't know. And I said, the bottom line is this, if it doesn't happen, I know what I've done for the last 45 years and it's okay. But when, when uh, Buddha called me and said, Hey, you're going into the, you know, coaches hall of fame, boy, my eyes just welled up. So I, so I, I think I, you know, eat my words saying it, if I don't get it, I don't get it. It, it does mean a lot. Uh, you know, it's it's a defense mechanism, right? Yeah. Of course, you know. Exactly. Uh, Buddha, of course, is Ken Pauly, whom I refer to him on this show as Buddha all the time. But for those that are just uh, checking in with us. But uh, you, I think what I want to do with you is I want to work backwards sure. uh, you with bet. your career. Because we were chatting before we uh, hit record on this show. And just the the stories that you have, and I know the people that listen to these programs are going to eat it up. Especially... If you were around the hockey scene, and I think it was kind of an interesting time when you were head coaching specifically from the late 80s into the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a different deal, and we'll, we'll go through all of that and your stops and, and how everything worked. But you know, currently right now, you've been with the Red Knights of Benel St. Margaret's for yeah, some time, 16 years. Started in 02, and uh, right now uh, you can be found working with the goaltenders. Uh, well, actually, JV now. Gold and JV. Until, well, okay. Goaltenders up until two years ago. Oh, there's a new goalie coach. That's right. Yeah. You know, you got there's so many red jackets flying around. <laughs> I know you've been with the JV, but uh, and you've had goaltenders. We're going to talk about some of these great goalies you've had along yeah. the way too, as well. But uh, d- tell us a little bit about your experience here, and obviously your teaching at Benilde St. Margaret's. Um, you've got a very warm relationship with Ken Pauley. Um, he's got a lot of close relationships, but I can say from my experience. Uh, when he speaks of you and about you, it's it's with clear reverence. No, we're close, and I've known. I actually played high school hockey with uh, Kevin, uh, Ken's older brother, and Dave, my younger brother, played football and hockey with with Ken. And uh, so the the ties go back quite a ways. When I was the squared A co- coach in Wyzetta. Buddha was actually one of the refs that I had a handful of times, and uh, I, I gave him a picture. Hey, how was he? That's well, unbelievable. I, I gave him a picture, and I put a <laughs> caption on it of him looking at the net quizzically, <laughs> and then I put uh, uh, Ref Pauly deciding to take a goal away from uh, TK's squirt 18. Unbelievable. So the guy that absolutely excoriates officials was a ref. He was a ref. And uh, do you ever give him a hard time about that? Do you yeah. remind him sometimes? Yeah, I just remind him that he wasn't really on the goal line. He wasn't in position <laughs> to make the call. Oh, oh, of course, not in position. That would be the first thing he'd be yelling at a ref, right? That's right, out of position. <laughs> so good. Uh, so a couple of wise out of guys. But your experience with Benel St. Margaret's, I mean, it, it's getting on, you know, quite a few years. 
Um, a number of great players and kids have come through this program, families, and um, you know, talk about your experience with Benel St. Margaret's as, as a faculty member, and then again as a coach. Well, for me, the pivotal point with Benil, one was when I decided to, um, my, my first wife was quite ill, and um, I, I just had to let go of being a head coach. It's, it's just too demanding. And so uh, when I did, I, I joined Ken. I was on the bench with him for two years. My favorite picture, you know, Ken always delegates power play and penalty kill. And the second year I was with him, I was coaching the power play and I wanted to run a North Dakota umbrella for behind the net. It didn't go well. And I've got this great picture in my Ken Dryden uh, water closet of Buddha looking at me like this. And, and I'm kind of like this after the power play didn't work. It's, yeah. it's hilarious. And uh, it's one of my favorite pictures. But the point is this, is that um, I was an assistant for a couple of years when he left. I went up to, uh, I helped out at Cooper for a year, and then I actually went to seminary for a year. But when I returned as an assistant, I was still teaching at, at Hopkins, and my first wife uh, passed away in 17, and the Benilde community, I'm just an assistant coach here, mm -hmm. and it, they came out of the woodwork to help me, to support me, to help me plan the funeral, to actually find a, uh, a cemetery, I mean, um, Wags. It was the the love extended to a assistant coach was unbelievable. And um, after Kathy died, I decided I wanted to do something different in terms of where I was teaching. I actually toyed with the idea of doing voiceover work. Well, gee, I wonder why that would be. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, as it happened, about a week before school started. Um, I get a call from Ken and he tells me to give Sue Skinner a call because it looked like they had a part-time position. And so in that fall of 1718, I made the move and taught part-time for a year. But I have such a emotional bond mm -hmm. with the Benilde community. I love teaching here. I absolutely love it. And if Buddha fired me tomorrow, I'd still teach. Amazing. And um, from your teaching perspective, uh, my son went to Hopkins and he had a number of friends uh, that had you. And if I can remember who said it, I would tell you because you'd be like, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, no, but um, your name came up and they're talking about, um, did you ever have Oliver Hager maybe? Oh, yeah. OV, that's yeah. the one that told me. Okay. okay. Uh, and he had said that um, the reason you're, you're the best teacher he's ever had. And the reason why is he says, you know, he's just got this uh, – presence where you, how we present stuff is different from anybody else that we've had but it makes us see it visually and and mentally gather it in yeah, um and we were talking about this at a base because i coached him in baseball we were talking about it uh after a game we we're just hanging out and they were talking about school um mm -hmm. he was probably a junior maybe would that be about right right yeah right. okay and my kid was a senior and then everybody was chirping in and they just said then they started telling me about um various um sections of what you'd work uh lessons you know yeah, that right. and how you would do it and how it was unique and they were hanging on what you were going to say next and i'm sitting there listening to that and i go well i knew you from the rink and all this right. and you've done some broadcasts with me right. and i'm like yeah i totally get it and then i started thinking about the person they were explaining who was creative uh compassionate and communicative i'm like well 
that's the picture of, of, of a great teacher. So your kids that you've taught are saying that. Uh, so people uh, help good people right. in the situation right. that you had with your wife, right. your first wife. So uh, I have to let our listeners know that you are revered as a teacher. And as long as you're doing it, you're impacting the kids because they're telling a baseball coach that. Wow. So, well, you know, I, I think the essence of good teaching is storytelling. And especially with history, it's easy to do. And I think you can really pull kids into content, whether it's the Civil War or the French Revolution, whatever it is, if, if you can tell a good story, they're going to want to hear more about it. And they're, they're, they're going to be more motivated. And the fact of the matter is, what we do in the classroom and what we do out on the rink really aren't too different. You know, exactly. the, the, the modality is different. Unless it's the inverted umbrella. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> no, but, you got somebody to run it. Right. But, but the fact of the matter is you're motivating yeah. in both places. And you are, in a sense, you know, the story we tell with, with hockey players, it has to do with a dream. And it's, it's like they all have a goal. They all want to play in that state tournament or they all want to play on a great team. And so there's a lot of stories attached to that that I think can be highly motivating. And, and in the classroom... It's, they may or may not like history, but the motivated kids want to do well for maybe a different reason. So I, I view half my job as a teacher and, and by extension as a coach is, is to make it either interesting or, or be motivating. So your stops along the way have obviously given you some, some really incredible perspectives. And um, as I said, I wanted to work backwards. That, that's what I'm going to do. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, we'll just throw this out that you, you were at River Falls. That was your first experience at the very beginning out of college. So you grew up in Wyzetta, went to Wyzetta High School. Where was college for you? Well, actually, I, I, was, I went to River Falls for two years. I, I, when I graduated from high school, I worked for a year played in Harry Brown's Junior League down at the old Golden Valley's uh, um, Ice Arena. Did it have the bump at center ice? Oh, yeah. Well, being a goalie, I hated that bump on the what would be the right. south end yeah. because a guy could take a slap shot on it, the other blue line, which was actually... It up. Yeah, the blue, the blue line, the blue line, the blue line in that rink was like the old Rosso rink. It was yeah. maybe 10 feet. At best. Yeah. And if, yeah. if a guy took a slap shot on the ice, it would hit that, and you'd be gloving it over your head. <laughs> so it would ramp up. Oh, really ramp up. As a matter of fact, one time I got hit in the neck. Oh. So my point is um, I, I did that for a year, and, and I went to River Falls to try out, and Donnie Joe gave me a tryout. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a great tryout. I'm sure everyone says that, but I had an hour-long scrimmage against the, the returning uh, or the top recruit and I stopped Dave Crowley on a breakaway. He was a all the all conference, all American captain, senior, and he digged to my glove side, went stick side, kicked it out, and I put the puck in the corner of Donnie Joseph, the head coach, and I jumped up, got up against the pipe, and I thought I'm on this team. I just stopped Crowley. But then the next morning I saw my name on the on the cut list. So you did everything you could? I did, and you know it was a great experience trying out for college. And you've had to cut kids like that too, I'm sure. Oh yeah, it's tough. Yeah, uh, where you feel really good about it, and then you're like, "Whoa!" No, uh, not the easiest thing to do as a coach, is it, it? Any coach will tell you the tryout week's the worst week emotionally because you're cutting kids you know, you're cutting kids you care for, and uh, in a program like this, a program like Tonka Wayzata, you have so many more going out than are going to make it. Uh, as Buddha says best, uh, I love this. He says, um, every player usually has tears when their game ends. 
So after tryouts for high school, it's usually there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tough section loss, or it's a state tournament loss, or Tears of Joy state tournament win and Tears of Sorrow because you're done. That's right. And um, no matter how you look at it, it's an emotional thing. And I think being parents, you're aware of that. Um, it takes a lot to just step back and let that process work for itself and see, see, let the chips fall where they may. But there isn't a coach I know that really loves that part of the year ever at all. It's really tough, isn't it? It is tough because um, the fact of the matter is you've probably had a lot of these kids in camp over the years. Yep. And you, you or in the room, or in the classroom, you've got this connection, and you are going to see them. So you do it as delicately as you can. You do it as respectfully as you can. And the, the fact of the matter is, it's um, it is part of life. It's a hard part of life. But I'll tell you what, coaches get as emotional about it. Not in the room with the kid, but the night before when you're making that decision, you don't sleep well because uh, the best coaches were probably not good players. And probably all of us got cut at some point. Yeah. So we know. And totally you know agree. When I when I got cut at River Falls, I remember walking across the campus, um, and I went up to a tree, and I just leaned against a tree, and I wept because I knew my feeble career was over. Over, and, just like we said moments ago. Right? That's right. So, so there are the tears. No, every every coach um, that's been through it has been through it on both ends. You know what those tears mean, though. Um, I think they really mean that it matters. Absolutely. And I think the one thing about high school hockey that I think is, well, even all youth hockey, uh, that is so special about it is because we're so Mm community-based, I mean, by and large, right? We are. Um, That you grow up around these kids. You go to school with these kids. You're with them as much during the school year than you are your family, and then you get to the rink, and it's even more. So um, I, I I think what you really get culturally as a group is it becomes a lifestyle right. um, of friendship, of work, of dreams, of goals. And when you go through this process as a coach, have you ever, I, I can't wait to hear this answer, have you ever looked and said, shit, I should never have cut that kid? Did you ever have any of those? Yeah. Um, and I had, I did have at Tonka, a couple of kids that came back the next year and we rostered them. So it would have been a sophomore cut that, that was JV in the, you know, the next year. And they came back out. And they came back out. And I want them to come out. And that yeah. was one of the things we always told underclassmen, we, we want you to give it another shot. So, um, but I can't think of an impact player that I would have cut that I regretted. Um, so, I they're, 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 so, so, so they're pretty comfortable with the process. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I mean, I think as a, a as a fan and as a parent that would be listening to this, that's kind of an encouraging thing to hear. Right. Uh, and, I, and you know what? I want to make a comment about the parents. The fact of the matter is the parents are connected with the parents of the kids that have been playing together. Um, but you, ha- you do have this pyramid deal where, um, you know, Eichel, I worked with him for six summers, and, and he, said, he said something to me I'll never forget, and that is, you know, when, you, when you're going through your trial process – you always have in the back of your mind you want to be building. So you obviously are going to return to the roster kids, for the most part, that were on the year before. Almost always you're going to do that. And at the same time, his deal was if you're a forward and a senior, you have to be in the top nine. And if you're a defenseman and a senior, you're going to be in the top four. 
So the point was his fourth line, his number five D, number six D, his backup goalie. They're always going to be underclassmen. He always wanted somebody returning. And when you're doing that, now you've got a close pick between a senior who hasn't been rostered, but he was JV, and an up-and-coming sophomore. If he's not in that top nine, you're not going to keep him. Do you think that can get you in a little bit of trouble um, when you start putting a senior in a, in a bottom three forward position, bottom two D position? There may be some that are just happy to be there. They may say it after you've said, you know, this is your situation, but they want to play too. They do. Uh, could, is that more trouble than it's worth is the question. It's, it's worth it if a senior on a fourth line, and, and one year at Tonka we had a fourth line that was two seniors and a junior, and it, was, it worked and it was worth it because the chemistry was so good. And, and those guys, yeah, they were glad to be a part of it, but the chemistry with those with those two seniors on a fourth line was actually better than if I would have had a fourth line full of juniors or sophomores. They were able to accept that role, but I think it's rare. But chemistry is probably one of the hardest things uh, for a coach to create. It, you come into it a few times in a season. I mean, in a in a career, and it's really unique. We had that in that that fifteen sixteen team. That that one right there. Yeah. That that was incredible chemistry. The team that lost in overtime that was undefeated. That's the one where Gleekel got hurt, right? Yeah, I think that's a, diff- that's a difference maker in the, in the right. section semis, yep. right? Yep. Uh, you know, when you, when you look at your your Tonka teams, you're there from '90 to uh, '98. You were in the state tournament. Uh, that team. Let's use that one as an example. The '94 club. What type of team was that? Uh, did you ever have a team that could roll lines, or was that oh, like yeah. a star power team? No, that, you have there? that was actually a really young team. We had a junior goalie, Nick Rankin, who went on to play at Princeton. Remember who, him? Who was a, a, a real gamer. Matter of fact, when we went to state that, that night down at Mariucci, we played Wyzetta. I remember hearing him in the locker room before I walked in. I was kind of in the, the, the anteroom right outside the locker room, and I heard Nick say to the team, get me a goal because I want to play the game of my life. And, and we had a captain, probably one of the very best captains I've ever had, Matt Johnson. Early, I remember him. Early in the season, it was a, a conference opener. We went over to Wyzetta, and I remember him in the locker room before I walked in, or as I'm walking in, I heard him say, um, if we're going to win the conference, we have to have this game. And we won that game 3-0 at Wyzetta. But that was a young team. It was the youngest team in the state that year. We had five seniors. And it, we had tremendous um, chemistry and, and work ethic. And we, if you look at our scores that year, they were all like two, three goal games. But it was all, maybe we scored three or four goals and we won 3-1 or 3-2. But it was a gritty, gritty team. Two years later when those sophomores were seniors, now we had, we literally had three lines. You could not Did tell. you have Yurik in that mix? Yeah, Yurik yeah. was a junior in 94. A senior on the 95 team that lost. We had a 3 nothing lead at Mariucci in the semis against Eden Prairie. We lost 4-3 in overtime. Um, <laughs> you know, think about that for a second. That, that Back to that 94 team. That was the last year of Jefferson's back-to-back-to-back. Right. And if I recall, uh, you might have had some legendary Bloomington Ice Garden games against them. And in that period, I think it was, I think about the Hierarchy yourselves. I I want to say Park Center was in there. 
with Stefano's team, yeah. like in that era, like of the games. I remember because I announced all of their games for BEC TV. It was a right. blast. Um, really good. Um, and Blake was shockingly good with Shep Harder in goal. Yes. Um, and then Tonka. It was kind of the four. Eden Prairie with Lee was kind of coming. They were starting to come right. Yeah. And so when when they did that, were how did you? What was that like in the locker room? Well, uh, going back to your the original the start of your question, Jefferson in the uh, the ninety um, we played them a lot in the mid nineties, and in the the ninety five ninety six season, uh, they had a three one lead on us going into the third. We won five four in overtime on a Tuesday night at MIA, and then the following uh, Saturday. Exact same scenario with Edina down three one, win five four in overtime. Um, the ninety I want to back up one year. The ninety four ninety five season with Jefferson, we opened the season, and I believe Jefferson was ranked one in the state, and we were fourth. And it was a it was a Thursday night game, but it was the first game of high school hockey. And you couldn't find the seat. It was it was twenty five hundred plus. And was that at big? At big, there was. Uh, I was there. There were eighty <laughs> shots taken. Um, I think we had thirty six, and they had the the rest. They outshot us, and they beat us ten uh, seven uh, open net goal. But it was a wild hockey game, and I think a couple times we were they'd have a two goal lead, we'd come back and tie it. I always said that Denny May. Uh, left that door open a little bit longer I think he did. to I harden think he did. up that ice for his team. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think the uh, side doors, you know, on on yeah. the, on the uh, visiting side, I think they were open. They get that ice yep. good and fast, wouldn't they? And I think the uh, somebody took the fire the fire marshal out to dinner that night. Yeah, well, they, so, well, it's it's a cracker jack box in there. Yeah. Let's be honest; it's not the biggest. So, um, rewinding the tape, so after River Falls, you head over to uh, your alma mater, Wyzetta. And, and you were there for a year, right? Just one year. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things we were talking about before we started this was your coaching decisions were based off of your teaching decisions. That's right. But to be there, obviously, you grew up there and, you know, it's your heart and soul. But then this Minnetonka thing kind of came creeping in. We share that story. Yeah. I, um, I had returned, I had student taught and taught for a year part-time in Tonka, left for two years to go up to Centennial. And then um, I was actually in the library uh, in, at Centennial when the librarian, I uh, had my class in there and he said, Mr. Klein, you've got to call, you can take it in my office. And it was uh, the department head at Minnetonka saying, we've got an opening, you want to come back? And so um, I was able to actually go back to Tonka full-time teaching in the junior high. And at the same time, I'd been keeping my tabs on Wyzetta, and I knew Steve Rote was probably about to step down, which he did. Mm-hmm. And so they had 45 applicants, and they interviewed seven. Uh, and that's good. Uh, Dave Langevin interviewed. Um, bam, bam. Yeah, and uh, Carl Davis interviewed. Um, uh, Jeff um, Lindquist interviewed. He did? Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. I love Jeff like a brother. But what job didn't he interview for? <laughs> Go ahead. So uh, <laughs> well, he was actually uh, no. coming down was, from North Dakota. Blake? Okay, no, this is so before, this way before the Blake. start of his run. This is the start. He'd been oh, up okay. in North Dakota. Okay, I had sorry. Yeah, but he was up for the Nedina job too when you were. 
Yeah, and but him, and he may have gotten the interview. I didn't. I don't know if he did. We'll get into that in a minute. Right. But him, you, and our guy John Barger. Right. Uh, okay. So right. I've heard this is great. The best part about the C Dinah story is is I've heard Barger's angle too. Oh, interesting. And eerily very similar. That oh. both of your stories are very similar. Right. But we'll get to that in a second. So anyway, so but you back get to Isaiah. Um, so there's the seven guys that get interviewed. Oh, and Charlie Burroughs, who was the Bantam state the the Bantam champion coach with this group a few years before at YZ, you know, for youth hockey. But not a teacher. Not a teacher, no. So um it it we the seven of us go through the interview and then I get called back a week later. And I didn't know they weren't calling back other guys, but um uh Dave Landsworth was the superintendent. I was in his office with with him and the uh, AD John McClinsky and one of the HR guys. Now this is for White Zeta. This is for White okay. And Dave says, or Dave asked me, uh, you know, why should we hire you? And I I said, well, you've uh, let me just say you've got some great candidates here. You got candidates with more experience than I've got. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of my buddies the other day told me. Hey, the Wiseau's probably going to hire Herb Brooks, or they're look at, looking at him. Seriously, and they're joking. Oh, but they're giving me a hard time because they knew I wanted him. this. Yeah. And so I looked Dave in the eye, and I said, "You've got, you've got great candidates." Somebody ribbed me about Herb Brooks. I said to my buddy, "Herb Brooks may go after the job, but they've got nobody that wants it as bad as I do." And Dave looked at the other guys, and he's and I knew I had the job then. So I did that for the one year, but. But fast forwarding to Tonka, um, let me tell you one story about the Wyzetta Tonka series. I'm teaching in the junior high, and it's the night that Tonka's going to come over and um, play Wyzetta. And my Tonka classroom in junior high has got a lot of hockey players in it. And so uh, they wanted me to make a bet that if Tonka beat Wyzetta, the team I'm coaching, I've got to do push-ups in front of the whole class. Awesome. So I did the next day, uh, Tonka beat us three to one. And so I do the push-ups in front of the class. But the flip side of the deal was, if Wyzetta beats Tonka, the class has got to all do the push-ups, everyone. So on the return game, Callahan- Did the, the girls too? All, everybody. How, were, they, were they bitter or were they playing along? Were they good? They're all with it, because they, okay. they were so confident so that, that no Tonka's gonna watch win. TK dropping. So at the end of the season, uh, we go over to MIA. Uh, they've got Callahan, who I then coached yep. the next year. But my point is, um, uh, we get a goal. It was either late in the third or to start overtime to win 4-3. So when I walked in the door the next day, I said, let's have the push-ups. And the whole class had to get out and give me, give me the 15 push-ups. So, so good. Yeah. And you counted every one of them. <laughs> every one of them. So you spent some time at Wyzetta, but then you, you've you got what I would say from what I feel in here is a really heart-wrenching decision to make the following year. Yeah, uh, it was it was really tough. I wanted my goal since I was in high school was to teach and coach at Wyzetta. And um, when I, I actually, uh, at the end of the year, uh, at the end of that coaching year at Wyzetta and the end of the teaching year at Tonka, um, I was actually the second, right at the very end of the uh, year, I was actually over meeting with Dave Landsworth, the superintendent, 
and he was t telling me they didn't have a position right now, but he would create something. And um, I wanted to trust that, and I was really hopeful that could happen. But uh, the, I met with him in the morning, and when I went over back to my job at Tonka during the workshop week at the end of the school year, um, I was supposed to be in the building the whole time, and uh, the only guy that knew that I was over at Wyzetta trying to work this out was the uh, principal. And he was actually supportive because he's very professional about that. But when I walked in the door, I, I, I kind of tried to sneak in the back door by the uh, custodian's office, and one of the head custodians sees me right away, and he goes, Tom, uh, Don Dreyer's here looking for you, you know, the superintendent. So I roll my eyes and I'm trying to still sneak down to the office to talk to John Ruby and a teacher pops up and says, hey, where you been? The superintendent's been looking for you all over the building walking around. And then I go in the office and both secretaries point their finger at me and they shake their heads you know, back and forth and they go, Dreyer's been looking for you. And so I go into John Ruby's office and he goes, you gotta go down and talk to Don. He's looking for you and he wants to talk to you. And so I drive over to Excelsior and I meet with the uh, superintendent and um, we spent, we spent about two and a half, three hours together. Wow. And at the end, he didn't want an answer, but he, he, knew, he knew me well. And he said, you know what, let's you and I pray about this right now. And I want you to think about it for a few days. And, and we did. And a few days later, he actually drove from Excelsior to my home in Highland Park over by Schultz Arena. And, uh, he handed my wife a bouquet of flowers and handed me a note that basically said, we really want you to be our coach. And you know, given, um, given the way things were in Minnetonka at that time for teachers, compared to kind of a hopeful wish uh, over at Wyzetta, I, I just knew in my heart it, the best thing to do was to let go of the Wyzetta. It was really tough for me to do. I actually was crossing Cleveland Avenue over 94 in St. Paul. And there's something, I don't know what it was about the bridge, but maybe it's symbolic of this bridge in my life. Sure. And I just, I literally had to pull the car over and I crossed the bridge. I just wept for like 20 minutes because I knew I had to let go of the Wyzetta thing and I was going to go to Minnetonka. But I don't look back. It was the right thing to do um, at that time in my life. And uh, I, I coached there for eight years and uh, taught for a year after I was done coaching there. Um, and that, that's kind of how that came to an end. Well, then you knew, uh, so you spend your time, we talked about some of the, the things that went on there. And then your next step is um, you knew Bart Larson, who you locked horns with when you were at YZ in Minnetonka all those years, who took over for Willard Eichela, was probably coming to the end of his run too as well. So you kind of positioned yourself for that. And the thought of what uh, teaching any Diana made sense for you too. And so you're, you were kind of moving down that road. Yeah, I actually went and met with Steve Dove, the AD at the time, and um, I did have the opportunity to coach against Ike for two seasons, once at Wyzetta, uh, for one year at Wyzetta and one at Tonka, and then Bart took over. But uh, by the time we get to um, the end of the 98 season, um, I thought if, if I really want a job at Edina, I need to beef up my teaching resume, and that included teaching AP Euro history. And I, but I was, I was really fearful of the, the whole thing. And so I went and met with, with Steve in his office and I just, I asked him, if I were to focus on my teaching resume in lieu of getting ready to apply here, when Bart steps down, would you hold that against me that you're away from hockey? And he said he wouldn't. And I, I trusted him and I believe that was always the case. 
but the following year, um, after I taught AP Euro, three classes of it for a year, which was, it's, it's labor intensive to teach AP, especially mm -hmm. the first time through. Um, I put all my application, you know, for both teaching and coaching in Eddie Dina, and they had advertised they're looking for a teacher coach. And I thought I would have a good shot at it. Um, at least uh, get an interview, which is what you always want, is to at least get your foot in the door with an interview. And I, I get a letter, I was living in Eden Prairie, really close to the EP rank, and I get this letter from Steve Dove, and it thanked me for applying, but I wouldn't be receiving the interview. And so I immediately called the Dyna HR and told the woman that um, I was still interested in the teaching part of it. And she was actually shocked and she wanted to verify that, uh, how did I know I wasn't getting the interview? And I said, I got a letter from Steve. And she said, she told me your paperwork was the best we had for the combined teaching and coaching. So I, I then thought, well, Edina was probably set on hiring um, Kurt Giles, who I think is an exceptional coach, and I think he's done an exceptional job. And I actually knew Kurt through my connections with the North Stars, and so no ill will towards Kurt. I'm totally impressed with the job he's done. Well, they clearly made the right choice. They did make you know. the right choice, uh, um, but they also weren't, I didn't think they were as serious about having a teacher coach when they decide to hire. So when I, you know, the stories I've heard was that there was the belief that it was going to be a teacher coach, which brings up this whole topic yeah. right here. Um, that was really about, I would say, the first major domino um, in hockey, especially where a, a non-teacher, uh, almost let's call it a civilian, yeah, was right. the coach. Um, and it, and it, it's changed things around. And, and, and one of the things that I've argued, and I want to hear your opinion on this, is that if you're a non-teacher coach, you better have a very understanding boss. You better have a sales job that has residual income. Right. Or um, you better be independently wealthy. Because it's a full-time job, not just on-season but off-season. And we're talking about driving and weather and practice times and games and summer hockey and everything else. Do you think that the way high school sports are structured, that they benefit the teacher coach and fit better? And is it something you are sad to see go? Where do you fit in that realm of the non-teacher coach? Well, to the extent that Co-curriculars are an extension of the high school. I believe the best thing for the athletes across the board is that you're seeing your coach during the day in the hallway or in the classroom. Mm -hmm. You know, you're 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 having that ongoing contact. I think that that athlete, teacher, coach, you know, student athlete, teacher, coach relationship is tantamount. I think it's really important, and I believe that you've really got to, to not be in the building as a teacher is a real challenge. And I think that the, the athletes miss something when they're not seeing that coach on a regular basis. Agree. And that's my bias yep. and that's my experience. And I think that's, that's in a sense, in terms of the educational process, I think it's to the detriment that so many sports, so many teams in the last 15, 20 years 
have coaches that aren't teachers. Well, so then to me, just the fit professionally, because when your workday ends, practice starts, you don't have to rush from some other part of the Twin Cities to get to a practice. If, If your prep hour is your last hour, great. Right. Then all you need to do is uh, get to the rink and it fits. You're done. You go home. Um, so I do think all of that plays into it. But I don't know if it'll ever cycle back. Because it used to be guys like, like you and Buddha would go to college to become teachers because you wanted to coach. Right. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, you know, I took a gamble. I took a huge gamble um, to let go of the Tonka coaching to try to set myself up. In the end, the story turned out well because um, a few days later, Ron Selno yeah. calls me. It's the last day of workshop uh, in the spring of, of uh, 98 or 99. Were I you kind say. of bummed out at this stage a little oh, bit? Oh, I was really down. Okay. I, I really had hopes of getting that interview because I felt in the interview I'd do well. So Ronnie's a bright light. Being yeah, yeah, so Ron yeah. calls me. I'm actually at Minnetonka High School when he calls me and he, he asks if I'd be interested, they'd, they'd, hire, uh, they'd interviewed some guys after Vinny. Uh, and he's uh, with Hopkins. Yeah. Vinny steps down and they had interviewed, Ron told me, hey, we've interviewed you know five guys and we're really, we'd like to interview you. And I said, well, um, when do you want to do this? I'm thinking he's going to tell me in like a week from now or whatever. And he says at noon, and I look at my <laughs> clock, and it's eleven fifteen. Yes. And I, I kind of panicked. I said, "Ron, I got to run home and take a shower, and I'm not going to have a portfolio or anything with me. I'll just get uh, put a tie on, and I'll interview." Yeah. And so I walk in the door and back to the principal's conference office. There's eight people in the room, and I just out of the corner of my eye, I notice there's this whiteboard right behind where I was going to sit, and. I didn't plan this out, but the way the interview went, um, somebody had asked me, you know, describe my approach, and I said, well, it's eclectic. And somebody else said, what do you mean by that? And I, I turned around, and I actually grabbed the marker, and I drew a window, and I talked about Sally Broadhead, who was a, uh, 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 Elizabeth Broadhead, who was a woman who lived in Gettysburg, and every night she wrote in her diary, looking out the window at the streets, watching the Confederate soldiers go through their the homes. And she was praying to God that they wouldn't come into her house. And in fact, they didn't. But they were pillaging for supplies and food. And I, I described the story like I'm looking out the window. Yeah. And they were spellbound because the, the principal told me a few days later, he said, when you drew that window on the whiteboard, I knew you were our guy. And then that was a Friday, uh, noon to 1 or 1.30. And then I went back for an interview that morning you know, with Dan Johnson and a few people for hockey. And by noon on Monday, they'd called and offered me both jobs. So the, here's the silver lining. I've always let the teaching drive my career. Yeah. And, it, and in terms of my teaching career, it was the best thing that happened to me. Because I went from teaching basic U.S. history, world history courses at Tonka, which was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And an AP course to, um, I got to teach honors world religion, honors philosophy. I proposed a course on the Middle East in 04 that I taught for 14 years. And it was just so much fun. I loved the fact that the curriculum was so broad at Hopkins. And I absolutely... Parentally, I could fully agree. Yeah. And, yeah. and 16 of the 18 years, I loved it. Uh, there were some dynamics that changed in terms of 
uh, discipline policy that made it tougher to teach there. And they had a four-year period where yeah. you couldn't take the phone away from a kid if you were about all that. That was pretty tough. And when my wife, my first wife passed away and the opportunity to move over to uh, Benilde came up, I just jumped on it. And here you are now. It's, it's an amazing story, and it's a Hall of Fame career story. And one of the things I, uh, I, I have to ask, two-prong question, what makes a good head coach? Well, I tell kids, both in the classroom and at the rink, a great coach can think like a player, and a great player can think like a coach. Yeah. And so um, let me take, I'm going to take Ken Pauley, for example. Because he was, well, he was probably a better goalie than I was in high school. I, I, I wouldn't say probably he was, but he wasn't, in the end, the main guy. You know, he, he, he and I have that in common, although I was, I was more of a backup to the backup. He, he was a backup goalie. But, but in the end, um, we both had this vantage point of being on the bench and watching the coach. Mm-hmm. And when you're on the bench or you're in the net, you're seeing the game, the bigger game, but you're also seeing the way players respond to coaches' decisions in game time on the bench, and you absorb a lot of that. And so I'm sure he would have been the same way I was, where you're watching interactions you know, in the heat of battle, and you're thinking to yourself as a 17, 18-year-old kid, I wouldn't do it quite that way. Or I would. This is. Or oh, I like what the coaches did. You're 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 forming you're thinking your own, for yourself. You are thinking for yourself because you have the opportunity as a backup to do that. Um, but you also have the opportunity to see the big picture of the game when you're in the net when you get that chance. For me, it was mainly practice. You, but, you, you know what the net does too. Uh, I believe, from my experience, is it allows you the ability as a coach to recognize what they're doing well. Uh, and it's impacting us. I think right. if you, I think if you're a position player, you're more stuck on that side of it. But w- as a goaltender, you're seeing what's coming this way and what's going the other way, and you're understanding. I think the most important word, why. Right. And so, Absolutely. when if you know the why yeah. things are happening, then you can get to the what and the how. Yeah, and you know, I, I had the opportunity when I was in River Falls. Um, they, River Falls, uh, UW River Falls for years, probably 20 years, ran a, a clinic for collegiate coaches and, and a handful of high school coaches. And they brought in the winning NCAA basketball coach and the NCAA hockey coach. And I, I was a student back in 76, and I went to the AD that was running this thing, and I said, hey, could I attend this? He goes, no. It's not for um, students, it's for high school and college coaches in the area. And so then I said, well, is there anything I could do to attend it? And he said, no, there's nothing, you can't go to it, it's not for you. And I said, look, I really wanna be a high school hockey coach someday, could I, I'll do whatever you need me to do to help you, could I just please attend this thing? And he said, okay, you set up all the tables and chairs and the podium and the mics. You get everything set up for me, and you can attend the hockey clinic. Well, the first year, uh, Brooks is coming off that uh, one of his uh, three titles, uh, the 76 title. Yeah. And um, I got to attend that. I got to sit in a room with the MIAC coaches and a handful of, of hockey coaches. There was about 20 of us. And listen to Brooks talk for three days. 
And the reason I bring that up, because you're asking about what makes a good head coach. Brooks was a psychology major. And so while he did some X's and O's with us, the, the underlying thread of his three days of talks with these coaches, one of the most incredible uh, clinics I've ever been to because it was this focus with the same guy for a Thursday night, a Friday, and part of a Saturday, was um, motivation. Talking about the, the, today's players need to be motivated, and, and he's taken it upon himself as a head coach to do the motivating. And I, I bring that up because that's the master of a guy like Ken Pauley, is understanding motivation. Now, he's not a psychology major, but he reads psychology, he teaches psychology, and he has the ability to um, know the difference between when you really gotta push some buttons um, with a lot of emotion, and when you're going to really appeal in a real simple way, logically, to the problem at hand. And he cares so deeply for his players and his program. And I believe that, um, that I did that when I was a head coach, and I believe that I helped bring that to the program in terms of the role he wants me to play. And that is, do you really get to know players? Do you find out what makes them tick? And then do you push them where they need to be pushed? You know, it's the old kick in the butt or pat on the back. But he's a master at that. And the other thing, though, is uh, in terms of the game, he loves that high pace, that, that, that fast-flowing game. And his practices are high-paced. And his whole thing is um, he's going to play, he's going to coach the game in a manner that is hard to defend. And, uh, you know, John Wooden, the 10 time NCAA winning basketball coach at UCLA, once said the hardest thing to defend is not strength and it's not tactics. The hardest thing to defend is speed. And so I believe that that's the essence of his hockey coaching approach, and that is we're doing everything fast. So whether we're big or small doesn't matter. You're going to have a tough time defending us when we bring our game, which is a speed game. And it's fun to watch. It's fun to coach. And the kids love it. I believe it's the biggest recruit for Benilde Hockey is the way we play the game. Uh, there are definitely fun ways to play the game and not so fun ways to play the game. And uh, when you have the, the, the type of style that the Red Knights play, it's pretty much centered around uh, allowing the, the players to go, giving them some responsibilities to make decisions, trusting them with that. Sometimes it's high risk, high risk it and, and reward type thing, but uh, uh, at, the, at the end, they walk out of this locker room and they know they played the game hard and they played it their way for sure. And one of the things about Wooden and the speed that you brought up I know that Ken was instrumental in bringing Kenny Novak Jr. to the Coaches Association uh, clinics a couple years ago. And yep. Mike Taylor from Egan leans over to Ken and says, oh, my God. He, he, he said he's like just started talking. He goes, oh, my God, this guy's like not just the best coach in basketball. He's the best coach in Minnesota of anything. Yeah, exactly. and, and, and Buddha's like, you know why he's here. But Kenny was all about not, not skating to punish. Right. Uh, but – you know, not having to run lines like they do or skate like we do here, but instead to play at a tempo and pace in practice in which they've gotten that and more in real-time situations. Yeah, you really want to um, have the kids in a position where when they get into the game, 
the game almost feels slow to them compared Correct. to practice. You know, uh, when I was at Tonka, Steve Curry was our um, Bantam coach. He used to come over to my house a lot. Steve Curry was on the, the first 69, the first team in 69 that won a title for Edina. And uh, Steve made that very similar comment to me because I used to ask him, you know, tell me about playing for Ike and what was practice like. And, and you know, Ike, Ike, I think, was the epitome of uh, Vince Lombardi saying, we're going to be brilliant at the basics. And so they were always working rushes, always working three on two. It was entry, entry, entry. Entry, always entry. Yep. And then really sound defensively. But Steve said, we couldn't wait to get to the games because they were easy compared to practice. And, and I believe that, that Coach Pauly, with the high tempo in practice, has the guys convinced that, you know, we play like we practice, the games are going to be both fun and, and um, easier in a way. What I think I've watched over the Red Knights teams the past 20 years, the ones that have worked uh, under this style of play have had really quality defensemen. Uh, players that could either stretch it with a pass, That's right. great, or use their feet. Yep, so it was a multidimensional approach off the end wall. Yeah, and when you face it, uh, next to it's hard to defend speed. Yep. It's also hard to defend like a fourth attacker on the second wave of defense from coming in, or that you know that that D coming right down the middle when you've already had some forecheck and you've got possession, and now you got two guys in front of the net and you had two out. You know, digging in the corner to get the puck, and it, it is tough to defend a, a defenseman that's got the green light to get involved, and he loves the D getting involved in the game. Okay, final segment of this podcast has been terrific. Oh, it's a lot. Of this fun. might be our best. Oh, it's the start of the year. <laughs> that's right. I say it's a boot every time too. He's going to die when he hears this. He'll be on the treadmill too. I guarantee you. Uh, let's think. Word association. Okay, if you can, one word to describe these top ten goaltenders on your list that you've coached. I'm just going to start from the top, 1986, Minnetonka's Lance Madsen. Oh, uh, methodical and intelligent. Kind of like a Ken Dryden. He's going to outthink you. You're going to shoot the puck where he wants you to shoot it. Wow. That's more than a word, sorry. No worries. Uh, Dale Rail. Uh, is that Louis dad? Yes. Yeah. Dale Rail. Yeah. Love it. Uh, 87, Taka. Uh, Dale, the incredible athlete. Um, the guy actually ended up playing football at Duluth, but he was drafted right. after his junior year as a goalie by the Philadelphia Flyers. Correct. And then, uh, by the way, Lance was drafted by the Hartford Whalers as well. Right. Uh, moving on to 1990, uh, Jason Scramstad went to Minnesota State Mankato. How about him? Yeah, uh, just a great presence. Big kid. Really covered the net well. I'm just giving you what I think of first. No, that's the whole idea. We're just bam, bam. I love it. Because uh, if you do that, it's most likely true. Oh, right, because it's your first thought, right? Are you a psychologist now? I kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Why not, right? Uh, how about this one? Uh, uh, St. Louis Blues NHL player and uh, former University of Minnesota uh, Golden Gopher, 91 Tonka alumni, Jeff Callahan. His name's banging around out here now. I think he's coaching some little ones. Yeah, uh, Callie was an incredible goalie. He actually came to Tonka from Mound uh, two years before. Um, when I think of him, I, I, I think of the word presence, but I also just the word confident. He was incredibly confident. Uh, body language, what I remember from him, was always on point. Yeah. No, he, th this kid played the angles, but he, 
some goalies have the ability to play a head game against the, the shooter, and he would he would have been one of them. Uh, this no, the great list of goaltenders here, but this might be my favorite of all of them was Nick Rankin, uh, Skipper's ninety five. Rankin, total character. I, I know. loved him right out of my mold. He um, the, the 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 thing that I think of every time I think of Nick Rankin is hearing him tell the team before the section championship game against Wyzetta down at Mariucci is there's this little hallway that leads into the locker rooms. And I'd always wait and listen to the kids for a little bit and then step in. And Nick Rankin, I, I word for word said, get me one goal, I'm going to play the game of my life. Well, we got four goals, the third one, or the fourth one was open net. But um, uh, we beat Wyzetta 4-1 to one that night. But R- Rankin... When he had to, he just stood on his head that night. It's stuff like that what makes guy a guy want to be a goaltender because you believe that much that you can have an impact. That's right. awesome. Uh, another good one. I remember him very well. Uh, Rob LaRue, 97. I got to tell you, incredible uh, athlete. I mean, this guy was a tight end, and he went yeah, to the U. Remember. Um, and he he was an incredible player. He... Um, Actually, at big, the, at, very big kid. I mean, he probably could have been a great basketball player. But, but I mean, player he too. was a, that was still an era where the goaltenders were not much over six. No, and, and he, he was like he was six, three, six, four. six four. Yeah, huge. but you know, the, the when he was there, Woog was the head coach, and they I can't remember who the goalies were, but they had a couple of goalies. They were either hurt or sick, and it, everyone said, "Well, Larue's on campus. You know, he's a tight end for the Gopher football team." And Robbie, I think, played five games for the Gophers. Amazing. And only a, a solid athlete can do that. By the way, his dad was a goalie at the Robinsdale Robins when I was in high school. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, then we've got Mike Johnson, uh, UMass Amherst, 98. He's, he's around the Taka program right now. Yeah, he's, he's, the, he's their goalie he's their coach, coach now. He's yeah. a great coach. Every time we see each other, I give him a big hug. I, I, That's awesome. I hate to say this because it, the rest of the guys would go, what are you talking about? But of, of the guys we're talking about, if I had to have one goalie win one game right now, I'd pick Mike Johnson. Really? Because Mike Johnson, it's like he took the game personally. And on the, the, his senior year, we, um, all of our really talented guys had graduated. We're playing over at Edina. They've got twice the team. This is 98. This is the yeah. year after this they... This is the Dan Carlson edition? We're, uh, Peter Armbrust. Yeah. We're one nothing with a minute to go in the game, and we take a bad penalty, and they tie it, and they beat us in overtime 2-1. But he had 58 saves that night. He was incredible, and um, he gets his D1 ride based on that game. I'm convinced wow. of it. But, but the guy was... He, he was, whether it was a game or a practice, it was like a, a personal affront that you'd beat him. That's amazing. Yeah. It's hard to get goaltenders to do that. You tell young goalies you got to be impossible to score on in practice. They look at you like, okay, whatever. Uh, Mike Shabrowski, Shibby. Uh, third goalie. place, state tournament 08. You know, in that year, we have three great goalies. And um, he's a junior, and he decided his senior year to – to go somewhere else, but he he was the goalie when we took we beat Rosso five one. I, I loved him. We're number forty seven. Yeah, he he was like Dominic Hotchek in terms of this ability to be like having a slinky for your. He spine. wore the same helmet. Same helmet, and he played the same way, and he was. 
just a great goalie. And he plays at CC, and he ends up backing up at the U of M. From the Red Knights, uh, 2010, Quinnipiac, Jacob Myers. I love Jacob Myers. I, I, of all these goalies, he was like a, like a son or a nephew to me. Um, he and I actually went to a few Twins games together after he graduated. But uh, he was a real character. As a matter of fact, I gave my old molded mask, the one I wore when I played no. it. Here, I gave it. Jacob wanted it. And I, oh, I had to give it to him. He gave me his stick love. Okay. Yeah, but, yeah, I decided. Yeah, but he was a great goalie, uh, real character. We, we were over at um, Hill Murray his senior year. Uh, they had a great team. They actually dominated the game. Jacob kept us in the game. It's a 2-2 game that ends in a 2-2 tie. And some St. Paul television, uh, you know, Lake local cable, they wanted to uh, interview him. And I happened to be walking by, and the, the reporter is talking about his play. And he says, that's not my first rodeo. Oh, wow. Confidence. Yeah, but I look back at him and shake my head. You know, oh, but, uh, oh, no, that's confidence. I, I love, I love it's like, do you, do you know who I am? Uh, then last but not least, the true beauty, uh, 2012 state class AA champion, all-tournament uh, goaltender, played in the uh, Ushel, the uh, the Nall, and, of course, at Hamlin, Justin Qualley. What a battler that guy was. Yeah, and, you know, the story of the championship game, obviously, is Grant Bessie scoring five goals, three of them shorthand. Amazing. That's the story. Yeah. Um, but the second best player on the ice was Justin Qualley. And there was a point in the game where we had a one nothing lead. There's, a, uh, there's a, a rush that results in a, just an incredible second effort save that's now a face-off that results in goal number two for us. And had my biased goaltending coach position, but had Hill scored, I'm not saying they would have won the game, but it would have been, I think it might have been a different game the at complexion. that point. Absolutely. It changes the complexion. And so that save now sets up the face up. We get a goal and it, it's, I think it's a, like a turning point. Now I might be putting too much on one save, but, but incredible gamer. And uh, he wasn't going to be denied that state title. And so Bessie is the story, but the sub story there. The, 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 the big uh, footnote is, is Qualley's play. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I was on the call for that one on, on KFAN. And uh, I remember saying it's Bessie 5, Hill Murray 1, <laughs> right. which it was. Right. Uh, but I think big to that, too, was there were probably – I remember looking to what would be, if I'm in the press box, my left. I think you defended that end twice. That's correct. Um, he made some almost – uh, sprawly type save, second efforts, recovery type stuff. But I remember his pads being on point. Yeah. And uh, it was one of those things I'll never forget. Um, but it, it's funny how those things get overshadowed. But you play goalie not to have the five goals, but to get the job done and then lift the trophy. He was so dialed in. Uh, we talked very. We talked before each game, but I, I distinctly remember. Um, us talking about that. I actually asked him who are some of his goalie coaches over the years, and and after we talked just briefly about that, um, I remember telling him, you know, in the end, this is you, and this is your game, and yeah, there's a sellout crowd, but 
even if this was at the wreck or outside, it's you and the puck. And he, he just was so dialed in. Look at the psychologist now. You're the psychologist. Well, ultimately, he Love was it. the goalie. Yeah. You know, and, and the whole thing was, you know, this was about him just doing his part. And he was so, if, if you had a laser on that night head out to the puck, you know, infrared laser, his chest was always zeroed in on that puck between the pipes and out, playing the angle, the whole game. And so when you'd see these great second effort saves, it's still the whole body is focused in on that puck. And to him, it didn't matter what the score was and what Bessie was doing. He knew when the puck's in his end, that that chest and that nose was just like a laser, a focused laser beam, infrared light on the puck. And he just wasn't going to be beat. You could definitely see it. Uh, definitely. And, and it's like the game is slowed down. Well, I, I think that's going to do it here for our show. This has been an absolutely uh, terrific. Uh, well, it's always like to talk with you. Well, I didn't tell you to do it for hours. It's been a terrific journey uh, here on this pod, but also watching your career. And, you know, when you go to ranks in, in my world like I do, uh, there's so many uh, great people that you see along the way and you look forward to seeing. And um, the, the cool part about this is uh, I come to the St. Louis Park Rec Center and the two people I see are you and Buddha. Right. And it's the, it's, the, it's the people that make this game so special. And it's the Hall of Fame that you're now a part of yeah. that recognizes said people. So tip of the cap to you, to all of the men that, and women that have done just such terrific jobs with coaching throughout high school sports. Um, the kids have some great life lessons and values that they take from you guys. So keep it going. And I'm glad both of us survived COVID yeah. together at about the same time well, to be and, able to talk about this. And I got to give a shout out. I, I got married again two years ago and um, I got through the COVID because my wife became my nurse, really took care of me. Sue, I'm giving a shout out to Sue. Uh, believe me. <laughs> Sue, thank you for keeping him here. Uh, that's awesome. TK, have yourself a great weekend. Thanks for joining the show. Hey, we'll see you at the rink. That's going to do it for overtime show number one. I have Goldie on coming up next with Goldie's podcast in a couple of days. So long, everybody.